Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Polychromatic Podcast. I'm your host, Zach, along with my co-host, my mom. Elaine. And um, we want to just apologize. It's been a couple of weeks since we've put out an episode, but life has gotten busy. Um, and today we wanted to um, talk about a movie that we saw. Uh, and you want to tell us what, um, what movie we saw the other oh, day? Oh, we saw The Whale, and we've been wanting to do that for some time, Zach. And, oh, my God, I just... I've been thinking about it since I saw it. I think we saw it Friday night. We actually watched it two nights in a row. It was so jam-packed with so much that the second watch was awesome for me because I even gained more information and insight with the second time through. Yeah, I think the movie, there's a really a lot to unpack. It's, it's, it's pretty dense just... Um, you know, from uh, an emotional um, human condition standpoint, there's just a lot um, to have to process. And the first time around, there's some details that I personally missed that were pretty critical. And I think, you know, what scene I'm talking about, you know, uh, relation of the characters that I kind of missed. But um, I guess for those of you that are not at all familiar, familiar with what uh, the whale is, um, the whale is a... Um, I guess you would call I would call it um an emotional drama. Wouldn't you call it an emotional drama? Yes. Um yeah. and um the lead character is played by uh Bre- Brendan Fraser. Um he hasn't been in a movie in a really long time. He's kind of been off the map, but it turns out he's been dealing with um health issues due to all of his performances with the mummy movies and and there's been a lot of fans that have been wanting him um back, you know, um playing some primary roles here. And I believe he also won the Oscar for... Um, yeah, shout out to Brendan Fraser for Best Actor. And he so deserves it. Oh, my God. Honestly, it's as though he really experienced that character. He, he You know, they said... Someone said that he experienced something in his life that um, seems to mirror um, his main character's. Um, experiences in the actual plot itself. And I don't know the details of it, but it, he, he, he does um, provide a very convincing performance. Well, I think it goes beyond acting because mm-hmm. it is as though he really understands the depth of the character he plays. So I agree with you, Zach. There must have been some things. I do know that he had some health issues and had to take some time off. Yeah. But I think there was also, I didn't read about it, so I'm not real educated about the whole thing, but I think there was a lawsuit or something that was going on with him and he had health issues. And I'm wondering if there was not also some things with his children um, that were going on as well. So anyway, overall, just I have to say that the acting was so amazing that he, it's almost like it was effortless for him to play that character. Yeah, it really was. It was like a natural, um, I think he said during his um, Oscar nomination, um, during his acceptance speech, that, you know, he was given uh, what was he called a quote-unquote creative lifeline by director um, Darren uh, Aaron Aronofsky, who's also the, the writer. I guess this was originally written for play or something. Um, but to just give you just a, a brief background, um, basically the whale is about a college professor that teaches online English courses, creative writing course. And, um, he, his daughter just kind of, um, for reasons that are unbeknownst to the audience, just kind of is thrust back into his life after a period of, uh, estrangement. 
Um, again, uh, primary characters played by uh, Brendan Fraser, uh, who goes by the character of Charlie. Sadie Sink plays um, Ellie. Is it Ellie? Is that his daughter's name? No, yeah, his daughter's name is Ellie. Uh-huh. And then Ty Simps, uh, Simpkins, I was going to say Simpson, Ty Simpkins is the um, door-to-door missionary, a Jehovah's Witness guy. Thomas. Thomas. Um, and then who else do they have here? Hold on. And then... Liz, his caretaker. Yeah, Han, Han uh, Chell, I think, is played uh, by Liz. Um, basically, she's, um, I guess you could say, Charlie's caretaker unofficially, mm-hmm. essentially. There's more to her character. Um, and then uh, Mary is played by Samantha Morton. Um, you may know Samantha Morton. I personally recognize Samantha Morton as um, one of the precogs from um, a Minority Report, a 2000 um, um, sci-fi movie. And, and in this movie, she is Charlie's <clears throat> ex-wife. Yeah. And really, the uh, last thing I just want to say before I leave my mom off with um, uh, the stuff that she's prepared for this Um this all takes place all within a the same space with all within four walls. And um, we weren't sure when we first turned it on, if there was something wrong because it looked like an older movie, the way that the, um, the, uh, I guess it's a letterbox. I can't remember. There's widescreen and there's letterbox. The form factor for the, the resolution wasn't fitting the screen. And we were wondering, we later read that that was partially intentionally an artistic, um, you know, mise-en-scene technique that they used, uh, the director used to try to make things feel more claustrophobic. And the other thing we noticed is the movie is so dark, like visually dark, not just emotionally and figuratively dark, but like literally dark. We had to turn up the brightness on your TV all the way. And even then we had a hard time really seeing the details of the characters. So everything's kind of drowned out in just darkness, which I guess is appropriate for the the theme of the movie, but um, I guess, do you want to give them an idea of, uh, of your analysis and, and what you think is going on here? Sure. Um, I was just going to comment on what you just said. Yeah. You know, when I took the international cinema class, which I, I loved when I was in college, um, you know, I didn't really ever think about lighting and things like that, that I really learned a lot about in this course. And there's something behind that, that really sets the mood, you know, and we talked about different films from different countries and like the French, how they like to use lighting as the main thing of the romance, you know, but in this, honestly, it was like Zach said, so dark and so hard to see. But then as you're watching it, you realize why it was filmed this way. So normally we do not prepare for a podcast. We just kind of go with the flow when we do them, but I just had a really strong desire to write a review about it just because I thought it was a phenomenal movie. So this will give you just a little bit of an outline. And then I'd like to, with you, um, break down some of this, if that's okay. Yeah, I think if you can go over your 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 um, essay piece on it, what we'll do is maybe we'll just start over from the beginning and just kind of discuss sure. different aspects and different dynamics of the characters and what we think is going on. Because um, there's so much going on here. Uh, one final thing we just want to say is, Spoiler alert, warning, this is your last opportunity to turn off the podcast if you haven't seen it, if you have intention of seeing it. The final thing I just wanted to say before I kick it it back to you is I'm actually looking at IMDb right now, 
And not that IMDb is an, an all be all for scores and whatnot, but to see a meta score of 60, I think is a little critical um, of this movie. And maybe not everyone will get the depth of what's here because, you know, it takes personal circumstances in one's life to maybe be able to understand the some of the deeper stuff. I totally agree. And maybe next week we can kind of talk about how why we personally related to this movie so deeply. I think that might be a good follow-up podcast for this. Yeah, it depends on, I guess we'll just see how far we go. And if there's additional things we feel like we want to follow up on, maybe we might do another another follow-up podcast on this. Yeah, okay. So um, I'm going to tell you basically, um, the. it is going to talk about the plot. It's going to give away a lot of things. So please, if you want to watch it first, don't listen to this. The Whale starring Brendan Fraser who is Charlie, is a poignant, arousing, honest, and in my opinion, the most emotionally intelligent film ever produced. If you allow yourself to engage, it arouses truths, often unspoken, with gained insight that could be personally life-changing. The risk is opening one's heart to the brutal truth regarding relationships in the walls that divide us from the others we love. Often it is much easier to, to deny and avoid and this concept is the movie's victory. Brendan Fraser is an obese man weighing over 600 pounds. And when the movie opens, he is on the brink of dying. Sadly, he is eating himself to death due to his tormenting pain. He is devastated with incredible guilt and shame for life decisions in the past with haunting scars. As a result, he isolates himself from the world surrounded by darkness, none greater than that in his heart. It becomes very apparent that his greatest love is his daughter, Emma. Uh, Ellie. Ellie. I'm sorry, his, Ellie. His, his, his wife is, uh, ex-wife is Emma. Sorry, Ellie. Although he left her when she was eight years old to be with a man. Ellie, his daughter, appears to in the movie after she has been expelled from school and shows up on his doorstep that same day. The question lingers in the beginning as to why she is now 17 years old and has not seen him since he left her. The truth is revealed through interactions with communications as the movie progresses. Most indicative is their body language, which portrays the intense grief of separation and lost years of not experiencing the deep love for one another. Charlie has only one way to express his love besides his continued sobbing by giving her his life savings of $120,000. Although this seems to be the magical satisfaction for her to continue visits, her agenda is asking her father to write essays for her since he is a critical writing teacher. These provocative interactions emulate clarity that they are very much the same beings, meaning that they are just alike, with their intense emotions masked with anger, guilt, and regret, but in the end, highly sensitive humans that want to belong together. Ellie's mother enters the film, appearing only for a brief time, and her name is Emma, but enough to grasp the heart-wrenching pain they both feel. After accomplishing some resolve and tender moments, these are sadly spoiled when she storms out angrily, abandoning Charlie with unanswered questions and feelings concerning M um, Ellie's fate. Charlie's caregiver, Liz, is invested in his care, but it's not revealed until later in the movie the reason why 
This is of such great importance to her. Liz is insistent that Charlie goes to the hospital, which he continues to refuse because he wants to die. Their connection is more than that of a caregiver because the pain she is feeling is similar to Charlie's. As it turns out, the man that Charlie left his family for is her brother. Once again, tumultuous tumultuous emotions arise about another family whose pain is overbearing because of their lack of compassion and understanding. Casting a loved one out of the family because of their decision-making and judgment is repetitive throughout this film. It made me stop and think about how prevalent this is with families' non-flexibility and lack of openness due to their belief system being the primary objective of their existence. The destruction based on this is the greatest tragedy of all, the scars that never heal, and the missed opportunities of joy, love, and acceptance. Ellen, who was Charlie's man, eventually stopped eating and jumped off of a bridge because of feelings related to shame, guilt, and rejection of family members. Liz and Charlie understood this together since Ellen was their connection. There are a couple of other characters in this movie, uh, but I felt that their history um, didn't have the same same impact as the family that I've spoken about. There's Thomas, who is a wanderer who showed up at Charlie's door and was also a reject of his family due to stealing from the from funds from his church and running away to escape his family's humiliation. There are a couple of scenes of interactions that contribute to the impact of the movie with with Charlie and Ella, but mostly his family forgive him for his wrongdoing. So basically just to to explain that further is during the movie he finds out towards the end that he calls his family and they're forgiving him for what he did. And then there, the, there is this pizza driver who delivered pizzas to Charlie regularly and knew there was something wrong. And he checked in with Charlie when he delivered the pizzas. Charlie would always leave a $20 bill in his mailbox since he didn't want to be seen by anyone, including the students he taught a class to online. One day, the pizza man was waiting outside when Charlie opened the door and he saw Charlie and chuckled after what he saw. I believe after I saw this movie that most people would not relate to the characters much more than just watching the mind-changing plot. I realized I related to this movie because I have experienced this tormenting pain and felt this movie aced it. But for those who have not experienced this life-changing depth of pain, There is a powerful and important message, I believe, that speaks to everyone. It's about judgment, acceptance, brutal honesty, and a myriad of other emotions that should make everyone stop and think. Is there a loved one that has been cast out of your family because of judgment or the inability to allow that person the freedom to be who they are? It's not too late to step in and have conversation and amends. That is, if you feel the need. Hmm. Well, well done. You know, it's um, really, that's, um, I think, a pretty uh, beautifully uh, put um, way of describing kind of the setting without 
going into too much detail, kind of keeping some mystery alive, because this is kind of perfect for us to be able to just kind of dive right into um, our thoughts about what these dynamics are and what's actually going on and what's what the director and the writer um, of this movie slash play is is really trying to say um, to people. Um, so do you have any thoughts or you want me to just go? Well, I was just going to say, you know, in the beginning when Ellie shows up, his daughter, she is so angry. She is actually pretty cruel to her father. It took me a while to really analyze her, the words she said to him because they were so cruel. But I realized that that anger was really pain and hurt, in my opinion. And yes, she had some anger. She had every right to because she's 17 years old now and she hasn't seen him since she's been eight years old. But what was so interesting, I think, Zach, is that she showed up to begin with. Just out of the blue, she shows up and he, and when he sees her, the look on his face is just like, he's seen something like almost like seen an angel or something, something that he never could have imagined um, because he is so isolated in his own darkness that that was a very emotional thing when he saw his daughter. Agreed. And, you know, what I, what I think of a good way of just starting this is, um, the, uh, the saying, um, what's eating you? Yeah. Well, I can tell you for Charlie, (laughs) um, something is eating Charlie, you know, inside. And, um, and it's, what's interesting is, and it occurred to me in back when I saw the trailer for it, you know, when, um, when Liz, um, you know, says, you know, like, so like, stop it, you know? Um, and, and she, she threatens to, to stab him with a knife and he's like, what's that going to do? You know, it takes at least two feet before you're going to hit any organ. And, you know, it's like this. He was an optimistic person, but his way of coping with it is he had to develop thick skin, like literally, not just figuratively, like literally with all the weight that he gained, you know, that was his way of, of maybe, you know, uh, he became reclusive, he became inward and you know, he fed himself all of this food and maybe I'm reading into it kind of a little too, too literally, but, but I feel like it was his way of developing thick skin. It was the way that he coped. Every character had a different way of coping with the circumstances. And what was interesting is Charlie's lover, illegitimate lover, um, societal taboo, gay lover, he was the central piece connecting all these characters together. And as we were talking about earlier, you know, had Charlie been having <laughs> extramarital affair with another woman, 
it would have just made Charlie look like a cheap character, right? But instead, since he was homosexual, um, not heter- you know, he, he was denying himself who he really was. You know, and so that thing, that's where the power, where this movie um, really shined through was the fact that he was denying who he was. He was positive. And I think a lot of people thought he didn't care about his daughter. And it was actually quite the opposite. Even Ellie thought, he doesn't give a crap about me. But it's a lot more complicated because once the mom gets in the picture, we find out all these other things. So, um, but we'll just say this, the, the, the wanderer, Thomas, who's part of New Life Church, shows up on his door when he's doing what? He's on his computer, jerking off to gay porn, and enter Thomas into the room. And Thomas doesn't notice at first. He just knocks on the door, and Charlie says, oh, you know, Liz, come on in, because he thinks it's Liz, who's basically his caretaker, and he doesn't lock his door. And it's Thomas. And um, as we later find, we later find out some things about Thomas that we don't understand. But basically, he, for all intents and purposes, I think he's like a Jehovah's Witness, a door-to-door Jeho- Jehovah's Witness, basically, right? In the movie was called "The Life," but a new new life, a new life is what it was called. Yeah, and I think it is just like Jehovah's Witness because they believe 144,000 people are going to be saved, and I believe that's Jehovah's Witnesses' mm-hmm. belief system. But it was utterly painful for me to watch Liz trying to convince him to go to the hospital because she knew that he was going to be dead soon. His blood pressure was 238 over 164, I believe. Something like that. And she's literally freaking out telling him, you're dying, you're going through congestive heart failure, please go to the hospital. But the thing that's really interesting, Zach, too, is that she wants that. Yeah, she's she's enabling him. But then she begins enabling him by giving him a bucket of fried chicken. Yeah, and And, hoagies, extra cheese hoagies. And and hoagies, and, and it's... When he's eating that chicken, you can see, even though we've spoken about how dark the room is, mm-hmm. you see the grease on his face. It's glistening on his cheeks and on his lips. And and he, he, you can see he doesn't have a healthy relationship with food because he can't just eat normal. He actually eats so fast that he chokes often. Yes. It's an addiction. It's an addiction for him. Well, it is. Because, you know, we do know eating disorders, people tend to undereat or overeat, you know? They can be anorexic. They can be bulimic. They can be a combination of both. And honestly, his comfort was through his food. That was really evident that that's what comforted him. But it's interesting to watch him as he eats because even if he's eating... And during that time, he may be tasting the food or whatever. You can still see that it didn't help him. It's not like afterwards you see a changed person. It's just that he's doing that to try to cope. It's a coping mechanism for him is all it is. Yeah. And you know what? 
you see in like the scene where he's on his computer and he's reaching for the candy bar drawer with all the candy bars and whatnot. And he, and at first he's like, no, but then he's like, he starts looking up stuff about congestive heart failure and stuff. And then he's like, screw it. And then he starts eating it. But you can see after he starts kind of gorging himself on some, uh, I think it's three musketeer bars within and he's and he's chewing it fast he's not even really swallowing you know or or chewing it. he's really swallowing it and you can see within after he finishes the first bar about a quarter to a third probably a third to halfway into the next bar there's just emptiness in his eyes and immediately he stops eating he stops chewing he tosses in the drawer and he closes the drawer and he goes and 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 and, gl- and glances um, towards the window where he's got a friend that regularly shows up at the window. This I don't know if it's a, a crow or what it is. I don't think it's it's a bird of sorts. I mean, I don't know what kind of bird is what it's I'm saying. It's a blackbird. But I will say that maybe that's supposed to be a symbol for death or something. I never well, thought about that. You know what though? I looked at it like, or his only friend, like his friend. But I also looked at it with the compassion of feeding it. But honestly, did you ever think, I'm talking about this now and this first time I really thought of it. It's almost like he's feeding his friend to comfort his friend because that's what he knows comforts him. Yeah. But you know, it is, it's like there's this plate of food for the bird that has always got food on it. So he pays attention to that. And you've got to remember, this guy weighs 600 pounds. Mm -hmm. Watching him, he's got a walker. For him to even get up, and really, he gets up... Once a day, maybe. Well, twice a day. I was going to say, I think in the movie, what I basically uh, came to a conclusion with is that he gets up to use the bathroom. That's about it. Because it takes... Or to go to bed. Or to go to bed. Mm-hmm. But sometimes he falls on the sleep, falls asleep on the sofa. But it's like he is... You see the perspiration running down his face because of the exertion of doing that. And then the part, one part in the movie where he chokes because eating that fast, he's not even swallowing it. He's just, he begins mm-hmm. to he's choke. He's inhaling it. He's got con- congestive heart failure. He's choking. And at one point, he couldn't breathe. And Liz is there, thank- thankfully. And she tells him to lean on the arm of the sofa and she performs uh, the Heimlich maneuver on her, or the Heimlich maneuver move. on him. Maneuver on her. And, and, and on him, you mean? On him. And she, because he's so heavy, she cannot fit her arms around him to do this. So, with really great force from not just her body, but from a distance back, she thrusts forward to hit him in the middle of his back to try to pop whatever out of his throat is blocking his airway. And it's that, that part of the movie was like, Whoa. I mean, if you think about it, there would have been nothing else that she could have done because how do you do the Heimlich maneuver on someone you cannot reach around to be able to get in under their ribs and to be able to raise, you know, their ribs up and 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 do that so that the food can be released from the throat. 
And you can tell when this scene happens, this happens all the time. Oh, yeah. Because she gets very angry at him. Mm -hmm. And the way that he always deflects, and I don't want to say deflection is the right word, but it's kind of a way of deflecting. The way he always deflects these criticisms as he says, yes, I know I'm a horrible person. And and he, he holds a lot of guilt. And we oh. later, later in the movie realize why he even holds even more guilt um, when it comes to Liz. He, he always, I don't know how I didn't count them. He's always saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yep. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I think he genuinely feels sorry. But he also feels like he's the most pathetic thing in the world. And that's why he doesn't go out. I mean, not only is he too big to be able to do much um, because the exertion's too much for him, he doesn't want to be seen by anyone. So, as you said, Zach, I'm pretty darn sure you're right about that, 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 that because she just knew what to do. And honestly, it is really painful to watch. And then she, she starts talking excuse me, she starts talking about how hard this is for her. And I'm trying to, during this time, personally make the connection of why is she caring so much about Charlie? Yeah. What is there about Charlie she cares about? Okay, she's a caregiver. I can see where you can get close to people, but there was, there was, there had to be a common thread with those two because it was something much deeper than that. And she even says something like, Charlie, I can't do this. I've been through this before. Yeah, and and the other part, too, is um, you can tell that she isn't really a caretaker with the hospital or anything because she keeps telling him he needs to go to the hospital. Like, this has been an ongoing conversation for a long period of time, and Charlie keeps refusing to go to the hospital. Because he says he doesn't have health insurance. That's his excuse. Mm -hmm. But really, you can, you know, it's because he really wants to die. But he'll use that excuse, I can't, I don't have any money. Mm -hmm. And it isn't revealed till later in the movie when he talks to his daughter about giving her the $120,000 that he has in his savings, which for some time he actually has planned on doing because he knows he was not there for her. And he felt that that would make some amends and may repair the relationship, the money, because there's not much time. you got to realize this, this movie takes place in less than a week. I think it's a five days. Yeah, is, I think it starts on Monday and it ends on Friday. Yes. And you're watching this man suffering and you're watching him many times not able to breathe. He's wheezing. His hands on his heart many times and mm-hmm. you can tell he's in pain. And it's it's terrifying to think that there are times when he's alone because you wonder who's going to come in and find him dead. Really, you do. And it's almost like Liz was afraid that that might be her, or Liz was afraid that he may actually die when she's there. And as I, I spoke about in my review, Ellen, her brother, was so cast out of his family because of the fact they found out he was a homosexual, number one. 
And the family couldn't bear that. They didn't want to see that for what it was. And she was pretty close to him. Um, And when I say that, you could just tell how that affected her because she would try so hard to be connected to him because she was scared something was going to happen. And Like impending. Yes. And then I thought it was kind of fascinating in the movie how she talks about he stopped eating. Mm-hmm. Just the opposite of Charlie. Yeah. But then later on, you find out that he actually jumped off a bridge. And you could just see this movie, actually, the more than the words is the body language, the expressions on the face, the eyes that look so sad. And for a great deal of the movie, Brendan Fraser's eyes are teary. He tears up a lot. And then at one scene where his daughter's over there, he actually goes into the bathroom and begins to sob so hard. The pain that he feels, like we said earlier, is so real. It's so real to pain that is so intense that many people may never experience it. But as I said, I know Zach knows that pain. And that's the part, Zach, that I think I've never seen. I've never I've never seen that in any movie I've ever watched before is the ability to be able to really do that to that degree. And that's why I think his acting, I mean, that was so amazing. Yeah, and the movie, <clears throat> so... So let's just kind of rewind here real quick. So Thomas enters stage left through the door. At the beginning. At the beginning. Charlie, played by Brendan Fraser, again, 600-pound guy, is jerking off to gay porn. Um, he starts to have heart pain um, from the orgasm. <laughs> and he leaves his computer going. And he thinks Liz is at the door. Who tells Liz to come in? It's not Liz. It ends up being Thomas, this wanderer, this guy from New Life Church, purportedly. Um, and what's weird is here he's having what appears to almost be a heart attack or mm-hmm. something on the edge, something that needs medical attention. And instead, he hands him a piece of paper and he says, Read this to me. And Thomas is completely confuzzled. Why are you asking me? For you, or why are you asking me to read this out loud to you when you need a doctor? And what it is is um, throughout the movie, he he doesn't really go into detail later. We don't find out later what this essay is about. But he said it's one of the best essays he's ever read, presumably from one of his students. That's what we're led to believe until much later on. But it's the story of Moby Dick. It's a book report on Moby Dick, and. Um, I don't know all the details about Moby Dick, but I think most of us, it's been a required reading in our past or have at least some background to know. The main characters uh, played by Ahab, and I didn't remember this, but apparently Ahab has a lo- lover named Quigwig. And presumably, I believe it's, um, I could be wrong. I-, I don't know the details, but I think uh, based on that, it's uh, not that it matters, but I think it's a homosexual relationship. Um, and... Ahab becomes obsessed with trying to kill Moby Dick the whale. Why? 
because the whale tries to kill him, right? But as Brendan Fraser's character explains, and the person that wrote the original essay wrote, the whale is just a big, dumb animal. It doesn't have any emotions. And so, and the author thought it was really sad that Ahab spent so much of his time and effort trying to kill this whale when this whale didn't really have it out for him to begin with. Um, so to, you know, to plot such a revenge, um, you know, uh, the author thought was really sad. And so anyways, he's having Thomas read this out loud to him and you can see it's starting, it's chest pain is starting to, starting to pass. And so at first you're not sure if it's anxiety or if it's really chest pain since it's this early on in the movie. And as we start to get to know Thomas's character better, he keeps showing up at the door, even though you're asking, who is this guy and what is he doing? And it's not until later on when Ellie gets more involved and she's there more often and Ellie puts Thomas on the spot, her herself sensing that he is not being 100% upfront with who he is. The one last thing I just wanted to say before we kind of move on is, Interestingly enough, every character in this movie is experiencing their own version of pain, their own experience of rejection and grief and judgment. And you would think with the way that Ellie barges into her dad's apartment unannounced, just kind of makes herself at home, even though she hates her dad, as so she explains she does, and she acts as bratty as she does, you almost think that these characters don't have anything in common and it really makes her just seem really immature without any context, right? Bratty and immature. But what you really start to grasp as the movie um, proceeds onward to its finality is that A, it's in part justified the way that she feels, but most importantly, B, Charlie her father, and Ellie actually have way more in common than, than, you know, first meets the eye because, again, bratty teenage 17-year-old girl, cynical, um, doesn't have any friends on social media. She seeks to blackmail people and make people uncomfortable. And her mom personally thinks she's like the spawn of Satan. And Charlie doesn't think that at all. But even when Emma does finally enter at some point in the picture, she does feel that way. And she has kind of given up on her daughter. And that's one thing, sole differentiator between Emma and Charlie is that, you know, his ex-wife is cynical and her coping strategy, rather than eating herself to death, developing thick skin, literally, um, is she doles it with alcohol. So every character kind of has their own coping mechanism, has dealt with regret, shame, guilt, etc. And, you know, we haven't really begun to discuss a ton with Ellen. Um, I guess I'll just say one last thing without going too far. You know, it's interesting. In one sense, Ellen jumping into the water, ending up beached, um, almost like on hunger strike, right? He's like a beached whale that died because he didn't eat at all. And here, Charlie, 
was what was eating Charlie? What was eating, uh, you know, Charlie was being eaten alive with his guilt, his shame, his regret. And he literally was eating him alive. And that pain was so deep inside him that that was the only thing that could come close to touching with how thick his skin was, right? That's the only thing that came close to touching the depth of his core with how shielded he was, right? Well, yes, and I'm thinking that Ella's, Ella's pain was as big as a well. And when basically... Do you mean Ellie? Ellie. Ellie's pain, I think, was as big as a well. And, and in the, the writing of the essay, the part that makes you stop and think, and I'm going to quote it, And I feel saddest of all times when I read the boring chapters that were only descriptions of whales because I knew the author was just trying to save us from his own little sad story just for a little while. And that is just enough information to try to figure out what that all means, but it's deep enough, too, to start processing and thinking, wait a second, what's she talking about? Saving his own story and making everyone feel better just for a little while? Yeah, and you know what? Who's the author in that parallel? Although that might be a book report on the story of Moby Dick, the author in this case was her father. Right? Belly. Right, but... The author of the story, as she tells it in her book report, would be her dad. Oh, it's, it was about her father. Yeah. What you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Ellie you know? wrote this about her father. Even though it was a book report. So it was kind of like, kind of, she had the personal experience to talk about this. She didn't talk about the fact this all happened with her father, but it really the book report, even though it was a book report on Moby Dick, she was talking about the dynamics between her and her father. Absolutely. Yes. And the way that she saw her father, and I'll tell you what, she said she was failing in school because of her essays. Well, obviously, the pain that she felt was so grand. And that's why I say that her pain was as big as a whale, because she couldn't focus on writing, I believe, because of the pain she had with her dad, because she, this is something that was ongoing. As a matter of fact, during the, during the movie, he looks at her, I don't know if it's her Facebook page or what, a page it, of her. It is her Facebook page, and she doesn't have any friends, and she's posting dead animals. Yeah, she has and- no friends, and he's saying, I'm so worried about her. And then you're thinking, wow, but wait a minute, you're alone too. People are concerned about you. It's just these parallels that go back and forth in the movie are amazing. But really, Ellie was her dad and her dad was Ellie. And I think that she had the hardest time understanding why her dad just walked out when she was eight years old without an explanation. But in the movie... Each time she begins to leave because she's angry, she Mm -hmm. stops. She stops herself. She opens the door, she stops herself, and she continues to talk to him. So she does it in theatrical 
nature. You think because she's trying to be a big brat and be theatrical about it, but really she's wanting her dad to rile, get her, uh, her dad riled up, right? Ellie, don't go, don't go. Yes, because she wants to see if her dad cares. Like, yep. it's a test. She of- is, she's constantly throwing out things at him just to try to hear that some type of caring is there. And she does it in such an angry way, it's hard to really grasp where she's going with it. But she, in one point, she says, what are you doing now? You're trying to be my parent? Yeah. And she's just trying to pull him in, but she she feels estranged. Like reverse psychology almost. Yes. She feels very estranged, but in some ways she's so connected. Well, and you know, the main thing is Ellie's worldview. Her view of the world has been shaped by her father in this broken relationship. She literally looks at the world and she hates it. She hates everything about it. And so her relationship with the world and others hinges upon the relationship with her dad. She's put so much into it because her mom's an alcoholic and is completely checked out. And here is a father that walked out of her life and (laughs) he explains to her and it really pisses her off you know you know oh my lover's name was alan he's like yes i know his name is alan he even came over when grant when mom was out visiting grandma like and you made steaks you never made steaks for us you like you know and so she felt very betrayed by him and so her entire worldview was wrapped up in the fact that she was rejected and so that's the reason why Brendan Fraser's character, you know, before the movie ends, he needs, and before something happens to him, he needs to have some assurances that his daughter's going to be okay because it's kind of what's keeping him alive is he worries about Ellie. And it turns out when the mother finally does come into the picture, it is true. Emma is keeping Charlie away from Ellie. Yeah, I was just going to give an example of like one of the things she did um, to entice him or to try to see whether or not he cared because she said something like, I don't even know why I'm I'm here. And then she moves to the door and begins to exit like we talk about that she yeah. does. And then she turns around because he offered her the 120000 She goes, you want me to pay? You want to pay me to spend time with you? And um, then her dad even even made it a greater pot for her. Okay, yeah, I, I'll I'll pay you the hundred twenty thousand, and I will help you with your essay essays that she had written for school that that needed to be rewritten. And so he was trying to put everything out there that he could possibly give her to entice her to stay. But I think it's interesting she even came over there to begin with. Well, you know, she was suspended from school. I think her mom held her very account, well, not accountable, (laughs) correction. Her mom was an alcoholic that was checked out, okay? But her mom did give her, here's, here's what her mom did. Her mom herself was cynical. She blames Ellie for being dark and demented. But, um, Ella 
her mom, or sorry, Emma, her mom, was partially responsible for her worldview of that, right? She didn't have anyone. So I think the reason why she came out um, over to Charlie's after being suspended from school is it was the safer of the places to be. You know, here she couldn't be coming home from school early after being suspended and explain to her mom that she'd be suspended because her mom would have lost lost her shit even though she was just out, you know, drunk anyways. So she just kind of helped herself to to Charlie's place. You know, she just, you know, come right in. She would um, pour herself a drink. She would, you know, help herself to f- food while belittling her, belittling her dad. And, um, you know, she even went as far as giving him what, what kind of pills were they? She gave him some Ambien. She crushed it up. Like she went to make him a sandwich and she said, it's going to be a small sandwich with no mayonnaise. And what she did is she crushed up two Ambien pills and put those in the sandwich for, I'm not quite sure to the, even at this point, why she did that. I don't know. I think I know the reason, but. Okay, go ahead. I think the reason why she did that is she was irritated. And there's sometimes she too wanted to check out from her emotions. So if she could just be at Charlie's place without having to deal with him talking and listening to him, it was a way that she could do it. So I think because that night is also when Thomas came over and she got him to smoke pot. Oh, that was so funny because he presents himself as being so straight. And of course, he belongs to this church and he's going knocking door to door, going door to door, not knocking on doors and wanting to tell people about Christ. And, you know, he wants to be, he's this missionary that's, that definitely has um, an agenda of, of spreading the word. But it's really interesting because she, she was going to blackmail him if he didn't smoke marijuana. Remember? Yeah. She and- said, if you don't smoke with me, smoke marijuana with me. Um, I'm going to tell the cops that you tried to have sex with me. And- yeah. I'm going to tell the cops that you tried to rape me. Rape me. Yep. And so he, he decided to smoke pot with her. But then she found out when he said, does this have a carb on it? And she's going, you've done this before. And she really, after a while, she really identified that this guy is not who he said he was. And there was a big interaction in the movie with those two where she wanted to know more about him and found out that he had disappointed his parents with taking the money from the church. $2,636 or something. A petty cash that he skipped town with. Right. And, you know, it's hard to tell whether or not Ellie ultimately was trying to help him or hurt him when she decided to blackmail him and send the information, track down his parents and where he was from, from Waterloo. Um, I think it was not, I was at Idaho, what's next to Idaho? Where does this take place at? Anyways, it doesn't really matter. Well, he he was originally from Iowa. Iowa, yeah. So originally from Iowa, and he came to Idaho, because this takes place in Idaho. Yes. And 
So, you know, she senses that the story doesn't add up, but what she does is when he, when she does all that, gets him to smoke weed, and then she's out of context taking pictures of people on her phone. It's like, why are you taking a picture of me? And then she's recording the conversation about him admitting to stealing the money. So it's kind of hard to know whether or not, but it eventually gets to a point where um, Thomas you know, holds himself up in Ellen's room. Um, of course, Ellen's passed away at this point, but um, where Ellen's room would be, you know, uh, where Ellen would be, <laughs> it would be his room if uh, Ellen was still alive. But Charlie keeps it almost like a museum in there, keeps, a, keeps it locked up. But um, it was unlocked earlier in the movie. So he he holds himself up in the room and he admits to Ellie about, about what happened and about his shame. And it gives her an opportunity to belittle him and make him feel like he's the hugest hypocrite for being this missionary when he himself is a fraud. Um, but when he's in there, when he's holed up in there, he does see the Bible and he opens it up and he sees after previously talking to Liz outside because she um, she reams him, says, mm -hmm. New Life Church not only hurt Charlie, but it hurt Alan, my brother. It's what ended his life. So, you know, get the hell out of here. So he makes the connection that that's Alan's Bible because it's in first page, you know, Alan, and I don't remember his last name. And, um, and then he notices there's some Bible verses that are highlighted about um, not giving into the flesh. If you release yourself from the flesh, your spirit can be saved. And, and so he starts to develop this opinion that he really can help Charlie. If you can get him to understand that Ellen made the wrong decision about being homosexual and having a relationship with him, that if he could free himself from the cardinal pleasures of life, the fleshy pleasures of life, that he believed that Charlie could still be saved. And when Char when he confronted Charlie about this, first Charlie's like, how do you even, you know, and um, at the same time, this is after Ali finally blackmailed him. So he's almost on his way out wanting to head back home at this point because he found out his parents are willing to take him back. So that's the part that you're like, is Ali trying to hurt or help? Now, according to Charlie, Charlie's convinced Ellie was trying to help. I'm not 100% convinced because she was pretty, she's a pretty destructive person. But that being said, he's convinced that this is the way to help Charlie. And Charlie's like, do you mean to tell me the beautiful love that I had with Ellen is the reason why he deserved what he had gotten? Is that what you truly believe? And he's like, yeah. And he tries to get him to explode and admit he's disgusting because he asks him multiple times, Thomas, do you think I'm disgusting? He said, no. Throughout the movie, Charlie's trying to get people to be honest with him. Totally true. And I was just going to say, as you were talking about um, Ellie holding Thomas accountable by asking him who he really was because she knew he was not who he said he was. It was so interesting how he was trying to talk to Charlie about the Bible. And then Charlie looks at him and said, I've read it two times all the way through. And then Thomas asks Charlie, what did you think about it? And um, Tom, uh, Charlie says, I think it was devastating. And he talks about wars and he's talking mm -hmm. about out of this, only 144,000, according to what 
Thomas's religion is, is going to be saved. And he said, and then all these billions of people are going to end up in hell. So he actually knew as much, if not more than Thomas did about what he was trying to tell Charlie. Mm-hmm. So I also see that parallel between Ellie and Charlie. Oh, yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, because Thomas said, Thomas believes he hasn't read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Charlie believes Ellie hasn't read the exercises for a class when she has. But the reality is, and he even tells his students in his online course, he wants them to be honest with him. He even finally gets down to the point where throughout the, the whole movie, he intentionally keeps his camera off for the online course because he's ashamed of who he is and he does not want the students to see what he looks like. Well, he tells him that he tells him that the camera on his computer is broken. Yes. But after they write some very honest things about themselves, he feels like he owes it to them to be honest with them. So he shows them what he looks like and you get to see the reactions of a dozen people oscillating between concern, disgust, confusion, just a myriad of different um, facial reactions. And even the the pizza guy, because the pizza guy seems like Charlie is so reclusive, he won't even (laughs) open the door for someone that he doesn't know. And... But he starts to develop kind of a, a thing with, uh, not a sexual thing, but a, a thing with the pizza guy, like a normal routine, you know, $20 in the, in the mailbox and just leave the pies. And he orders two pies at a time to feed himself. He just gorges himself. And, you know, finally, after the second time or third, um, he's been there multiple times, but in the movie, the second scene, he's like, you know, hi, I'm Dan. You know, how are you doing? Okay, man. Like he's really checking in. Finally, towards the latter part of the movie, he does finally wait outside for Charlie to come grab the pizza. And I'm not sure if he's laughing at him or if he's scoffing or if he's shocked or what reaction, but it, it's, I think it's almost just uncomfortability when he does stick around to see who's the one that's coming out for the pizza. And there are also a bunch of other uncomfortable situations like the final night when they, he has a fight with his daughter and he has a uh, fight uh, with his wife. Charlie is devastated. And so he orders um, two more pizzas from Gardino's Pizza. And he gorges himself, but then he starts loading up. Um, God, what's it called? A ranch. He's just pouring ranch on the pizza. He's eating two or three pieces of bread at a time. He just, you can tell he is in so much pain. He just wants to die. He just wants it to be over. And, you know, he's eating so much that he's like throwing up and it's just a matter of time until he's, he's dead, you know, and there's so much pain inside and he's filling that hole with food. And it's the only thing that, that reaches deep enough inside him with all the fat that he has on him. You know what I mean? It's like the only thing that can, because even when Liz says, you know, like, stop saying that or otherwise I'll stab you with a knife. 
I said, like, what's that going to do? It's at least two feet in to hit, hit any of my organs. So he developed thick skin, literally, but not figuratively, because he's still a recluse. He still stays inside all the time. And in that final scene, when he does wrap up the class and they do see the way he looks, he says something that's very profound. He says, these classes are not important. College itself is not important. Your honesty and what you truly believe, that's what's important. And like a mic drop fashion, basically at this point, because he's fed up and he knows he's out of a job anyways, because he also written a, a kind of unprofessional email to the students about, you know, BF and honest, you know, and the, and the up to that point. And then they did answer his call. This was his final moment with his students. So, you know, he chucked the computer, the whole computer and broke it and then had this argument. And, um, but it was profound because Charlie was a very positive person, cynically positive, I'd say. His wife was cynically negative. She mentions that. She says, you are always the positive one. And the reason why she storms out, there's a kind of a tender moment where they sort of go back to the time when they were together. And she's actually sitting next to him on the sofa with her head resting on his shoulder. Actual compassion from her. There was actual compassion. And she, she did drink. She was drinking at the time. But there was that. And then when Charlie said, I'm dying, is when she got very angry. And she said, fuck you, because she couldn't face that. Because mm -hmm. truly... She never really lost her love for him. That was, I think, pretty obvious. She always loved him because, honestly, there was a part of the character, Charlie, that you just loved because I think it was, you knew there was something so deep inside with his heart. And even when he'd interact with people, he wouldn't really become angry or he wouldn't become mean or, or vicious bitter. or bitter. He wanted to express things, and I think he was trying to make amends before he passed. And I think I really, he passed shortly after his wife came over. Mm -hmm. And I think it's almost like he was holding on just to, to finish up some business before he, he left. He needed to make sure Allie was fine, going to be okay you know, uh, and before he could move on. And one other thing I wanted to talk about just real quick, what do you think the verdict is? Do you think Thomas, the missionary, do you think he was homosexual? Not that that matters, but the reason why is because that's the starting scene. He comes in and Charlie says, you know, after he reads it, reads it um, and sticks around until Liz gets there and whatnot. Um, before Liz gets there, though, Charlie said, can you do me a favor? And then there's this awkward silence. And Thomas thinks Charlie wants him to give him, like, some sort of sexual gratification or something. And, and uh, 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 or Thomas thinks that. And, and, Char and Charlie's like, no, 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 I'm not attracted to you at all. That's not what I'm asking. And there was a really awkward moment, but... The reason why I asked that is because I realized that he stole the money. I realized that, he, you know, Thomas, um, you know, was bored with the missionary work. It wasn't rewarding for him. He stole the money. He split town because he 
he did want to connect with people deeper, but given the parallel of how he resonated with Alan, Alan's character, do you know what I mean? Because maybe I feel like he has some of maybe of his own denial about things because he was bound and determined that he was going to be able to help Charlie. And, and Charlie was actually able to get him to explode by pushing him. Well, I think that one of his, res- his response was he called him a fetus, meaning that you are so much younger than me. And Charlie was so sincere, but it's not clear whether or not Thomas was a homosexual, but I don't know. There was a part of me that was inclined to believe that because he was the one that asked Charlie if that's what he was wanting from him. Yes, and Charlie was not going that way at all. And he later followed the Alan subplot down the rabbit hole, found Alan's Bible, resonated with Alan, thought that Alan was onto something, but also believed that it was Alan's sin that killed him. You know, his his um, inability to give in to God's will about what's right and what's wrong. And that bothered Charlie, because we've already talked about it a few times, but, you know, Charlie didn't really believe that true love. And so when Charlie then starts explaining to him who Alan was, Thomas says, stop, stop. He's trying to get him to stop talking. It's making him uncomfortable. If he's not homosexual or he doesn't have a homosexual tendency, why is he, maybe it's his religion. Maybe it's just purely his religion, but why is he getting so uncomfortable about it? Yeah, it makes, it makes one stop and think. I was just going to say also another part that I think was really huge in this movie is that Charlie said that he would write essays for her. Well, he sent an essay with Ellie and she turned it in. And, and she got a failing grade. She got a failing grade. And the essay was the one that he loved so much that she had written. Four years prior. And he's telling her, you're beautiful. You're amazing. Don't you know what an amazing person you are? And she's looking at him because she cannot believe that she's actually hearing what she's wanted to hear from him for her whole life. Yes, and she has... What's the word I'm looking for? She, she had re, resi, resigned from the world. She had given up hope on the world, for the world, and people in general. Whereas Charlie found amazement from people in the world. His daughter is extremely pessimistic view of the world. Right. And the intentions of people. She considered all people to be assholes. But Charlie even says in this, this essay is about you. Because he realizes, and that was the beauty. And so she was upset because it was a failing grade, but he wanted her to understand. He says in the film, this is the best essay I've ever read in my life. And that honesty and those feelings to him are more important, like as he's even explaining to his college students. The honesty is important. This class is not important. So he would rather her fail that class and not even pass high school to get her to understand how amazing she is. 
that's more important than school. Yes. And I think the other thing is that just as he did with Thomas, handing him the essay to read when he thinks he's dying, he does that at the end with Ellie. Yes. When he says... She's about to walk out. You've got to read this to me. And she's angry because she knows he's dying. And so she's reading this essay to him as he's dying. And that, I thought the way that they ended that movie was beautiful because it afterwards Zach we talked about this if he would have just killed over dead it would have yeah, been like it would have been ugly it would have been ugly but he actually gets up and starts walking towards her like he got enough energy to walk towards her which she actually earlier in the movie kept saying I want you to walk over here just stand up yep. and walk over here and he tried to get up and he couldn't and he actually smashed his end table that which was next miraculously to healed itself which yes I never saw anyone fix that that we were kind of thinking oh how come his table's okay but now when we thought it was totally broken but honestly the beauty in this is that he wanted to share his last breaths on earth hearing the essay from Allie because it was about her. It was, an att- it was a, an, a, a, a testament to that sh- fact she was going to be okay. And all that literal weight was also figurative weight, burden, luggage that he was carrying around. And so you see how heavy he is when he's taking each step towards her without the walker. And then to see it, him envision himself on the beach back when she's eight years old, but also as a connection, like you said, with Alan. Because Alan jumped off the bridge into water. Yeah. So it almost was like they were going to meet up again. He was at the water because he just rose. Like the lights came, like light came for the first time in the movie. Yeah. And he rose and then he's, at the beach, and she's a little girl. It shows her as a little girl. Yeah. And so he goes from being 600 pounds to floating, mm-hmm. like the weight has been lifted off of him, both literally and figuratively. And Allie's the one that actually opens the door to let the light in at the end, too. But the way they did the transition of seeing each foot slowly progress as he's about to have a widow maker heart attack, right? Like a full on, like his heart's going to explode, presumably. You think, oh my God, he's going to kill over and die because even Liz is downstairs waiting for the ambulance. And we're not talking about an ambulance to go to the hospital at this point. We're talking about an ambulance for, to take him to the morgue. And every character said goodbye to him before the scene happened. And when Ellie had to recite her words, which were so much of her identity, she understood that she couldn't, just like Charlie could not undo what had happened. Four years prior, when Ellie wrote that essay, she was writing that essay not as a book report about Moby Dick, even though it worked for Moby Dick. It was, there was a deeper meaning talking about her relationship with her her father and the fact that she really did understand him, even though she felt 
written off by him and abandoned and alone. And so him hearing those final words as in the beginning, those were the final words he wanted to hear just in case he was going to die. He got to hear those out of Allie's mouth. Mm -hmm. And while she originally refused those words, denied those words, said, stop it, stop it, stop it. That last scene when she gets the door and she's about to walk out on him, she stops and the light hits her face and she says, Daddy. And you can tell this is a girl that is in so much grief and in so much pain that the way she acts theatrical and bratty is it's kind of reverse psychology. She's wanting to test just how much her dad gives, pardon me for saying it, gives a fuck about her. And she keeps testing that. And you see each time she comes over, he gets a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And heck, even when he asks her to write in a notebook for him, he figures out she's written a haiku, even though it seems like something that's nonsensical. So he knows he's got a smart daughter. He just needs to get her to understand you need to stop having your pessimistic view of this world. Do you have the right to be mad and angry at me? Yes. Do I even accept if you hate me for the rest of my life? Yes. Do Am I okay with you hating the world? No, I'm not okay with that. And so even though initially the money was a draw to her, and it was always intended for Ellie, I mean, hell, think of how Liz felt. Seeing what had happened to Alan, her brother, and Charlie could have gotten health insurance, could have gotten help all these years ago. And you could hear it was the same broken record. And yet Liz was also the one that came and enabled him. And I think she did it out of compassion though. You know, her here, her brother starved himself to death and killed himself by suicide by, by jumping off of a bridge. And she lived with the grief and sadness of that. The person that was closest to understanding her brother that brought happiness to her brother, the one person that did, Charlie, is now, due to the loss of Alan, literally feeding himself to death. Actually, there's a correction here because his, his wife's name was Mary. I just looked it up. Oh, okay. So just good, want good to correction. say I, I don't know where Ella came from then. Maybe the actress's name is Ella. Yeah, maybe that's what it maybe is. That. But anyway, I just wanted to correct well, that. Oh, yeah, just, good, uh, good catch. Yeah, no problem. I just wanted to make that clear. But, you know, that's so true because the other thing that I was thinking about was that she was really her own parent. Her mom drowned her pain with drinking. Her father drowned his pain with eating. And she was a rage and a holic, I think. Well, Ellie, Ellie was angry at the world. That was her. True. But my point where I was going with this is that she still had that openness in her heart for her dad, where her mom really, she could care less about, but her mom also said to Charlie, remember when she said she's an awful person, you know, Ellie's an awful person. She's she's a bad girl, and she'll never amount to much. Basically, overall, is what the mother thinks about her daughter. But yeah, she also thinks that that if she were to get the hundred twenty thousand dollars without waiting a few years, that she's just going to squander it. Right. So the mom is the mom, because the mother squandered it. Very disconnected, but it Ellie doesn't fight 
for that relationship with her mom. She's fighting for a relationship with her dad. And again, at the end when she's going daddy, it's after he's told her how much he loves her, how amazing she is, how beautiful she is, how he held that essay that she wrote to the highest degree of anything he'd ever read. And she really realized, God, my dad really does love me when he's telling me I'm amazing. He loves me so much. He's so sorry for what he's done. And he he does go into more of depth of that with her. And she interrupts him, but she's wanting to hear more. But she's he's saying to her, I made a mistake. I should have never done that to you. I cannot... I cannot repay you. I can't go back and change that. But you are amazing. You're beautiful. You're you're an incredible person. Can't you tell by your writing how amazing you are? And honestly, in this movie, I didn't see her once reaching out to her mom to salvage that relationship. Because I kind of feel like... Her mom had given up on her. Her mom had given up and there was no hope. But even though her father had fallen in love with the man and left, she knew that he was no longer around. And I'm guessing, because they don't talk much about it, but you see her playing at the beach. And I have to believe that up to the age eight, she must have had an amazing relationship with her dad because that was her grief. That was that was traumatic for her. That was why I said her grief was the size of a whale because that hurt her so badly because she loved her father so much. And I just think that, as we mentioned before, the fact she came over, the fact that she, even though she seems so angry and so put out by him all the time. And distant. And distant. You knew that she was by her body language, by coming back, by storming over to the door, opening the door, letting the light in, that, and not just storming out, that she really did care. And then the other part, after Charlie passes, you look out the window where he's left food for the bird and the plate is broken and all the food is gone. And I thought, wow, that is very symbolic in many ways. Yeah. And I think the first sign that there was more going on with his daughter than her just being bratty and hating her father forever and a day in the world too, is when she came over, I don't know, it was the second, third, fourth time, whatever. And he wants her to write in the notebook again and she's sex very irritated she goes over into the to the there's this uh, it's not a love seat but just a single recliner that can turn around mm-hmm. and she sits in it and she turns around from him immediately and and she's wanting him to come over there she is because she acts bratty she turns her back on him but then she, you hear her go from that to saying why couldn't you have called if you really cared, why didn't you do more? Why didn't you do more than just child support? But then and you find out he was giving he was, money. And he was trying to, but the mother did not want him to have a relationship. Cut yes. Him out. And 
And so it's something that together they had to fight for. And here's the thing is there, this movie was an example of how misunderstandings, and it was more than a misunderstanding, obviously, but just to simplify it into English terms that we can understand, how dynamics between people relationship-wise can lead to some major misunderstandings of one another in ways that are very damaging. And even though we're all after the same thing, right? We all want the same thing. We all want to be loved and to not be judged unfairly. And every character essentially kind of was after the same thing. They, you know, they wanted acceptance. They wanted love. They wanted connection and they were all striving for it, but they all had different opinions about one another, about the nature of what brought them to where they're at. And what's interesting about the Thomas thing um, is the, the wondering Thomas is I think um, what's helpful about them, them adding him in as a character is that's an example of the holier than thou family, family values. I'm not sure if you know this. Um, I, I had to look this up because I didn't want to speak out of turn inaccurately, but I did read a research paper. Um, this was several years back. I think it was like three or four years ago. And this actually doesn't sound quite as bad. I, actually, uh, I think I was getting the figures confused with um, the lack of... Um, I, don't, I don't think religion... Um, it's got such a, it's a, such a nasty word. It's got such bad connotation to it. But um, there was one that was saying that, you know, uh, I think it was, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, it was closer to 60 to 80% of people in the United States were involved in some sort of religious kind of, um, you know, church or something like that. And it's now well below 40%. And um, so that's the figure I keep got, kept getting for, um, confused or um, uh, get the two conflated with um, this other figure, which is, according to sociological research studies, nearly a quarter of individuals report current estrangement with family. And Thomas is an example of how family can use religion as a weapon as a tool for estrangement, potentially, you know, um, that's another level of misunderstanding. There are certain people that think if I practice religion, and that's something that Ellie discussed in the movie, right? To Thomas, religion is a way for people to practice, to make themselves look better than other people. And sometimes that's used against family. Even it was used against Alan. It was used against Thomas. Yeah, it was even, I guess, used against Charlie because, you know, even Liz admitted that. So all of these characters were misattributed that they were not worth worthy people by God's image, and therefore societally they were cast out, kind of, you know, exiled or whatever. And you see, that's the problem is, first off, relationship with, with a higher being, higher power, that is everyone's own personal journey. And I don't believe if you're born gay that you should go to hell. That doesn't make any sense. You know, uh, sexuality is 
is an individual thing, just like a relationship with God is an individual thing. To have people come into your life and saying, you're practicing religion wrong, you're not doing it right, when your relationship with a higher power is your own journey, your own sexuality is your own journey, it seems to me very uh, bizarre that we do this, but this is what leads to these misunderstandings. And unfortunately, it leads to isolation and to suffering. Absolutely. And um, they have so much more in common with the baseline human condition. If they could just take the time to get rid of the labels, get rid of the misunderstanding, they'd realize they have so much more in common. Well, and to piggyback that, I think that the religious thing was really huge in this movie, but I also want to say that the biggest um, exchange of words that Charlie really had with his students was about honesty. Like he was trying to teach them how to be creative writers. But after he... He got frustrated because he didn't think the work they were doing was authentic. He didn't feel it was, he didn't feel they were writing from their hearts. And he kept talking about that. You've got to be from your heart. You've got to be about from your heart. And so much so that basically he wrote an email to them um, that was not really appropriate um, from the standpoint of just putting it blankly out there so that. Like be effing honest. I'm tired of you guys not being honest. And then when he got, when he saw them online for the last time, he opens up his camera so they can see him. But he also said, he also reads, I think, three different students' students' responses about honesty. And they said something very, very... um, My parents want me to be a radiologist, and I don't even know what that is. Right. They talked about something that was honest, like, I'm being told to do this. And so... That was huge because, again, don't listen to what other people tell you. Be who you are. Let people be people. Let people be people. Be honest. And that's really, he says, college doesn't matter. This class doesn't matter. But honesty matters. Yes. And And, Ellie not passing high school. Well, that seems, how could he do that to her? He would rather her be okay. Right. With the relationship than to worry about a class. Because he realized that even though he had this homosexual relationship that when she was eight years old, he didn't cover that up. He didn't hide it. But the fact was he was rejected and he was scorned for that. And I think he was trying to express, like I said before, he wanted to make amends with people that were in his life and tell them that he was sorry because he knows how much it hurt them. And obviously, I don't believe that when he meant Ellen, that he meant to purposely hurt them, but he talks about how he fell in love with them and he couldn't help it. But with with, um, Ellie especially, he's telling her that how much he loves her and how deeply sorry he is. But you know what? When you think about it, Zach, she is, maybe she's the one during those few days of interaction, she's being blatantly honest to him about, you left me, Dad, when I was eight years old. You can, you can, you can sugarcoat that any way you want to. The truth is. And I think that 
there was a part of that that Charlie took to heart even more so in thinking that, wow, I, I hurt her so deeply. There's nothing I can do to go back and repair that. But to be honest from my heart to her and try to explain to her why that happened is the best thing I can do. And I think then trying to explain that as much as she would allow him to was really important. But then I think the part that really got through to her is when he just told her, you are so amazing. And just, and she's like, she's like, stop it, stop it. Yes. And then she finally gives in because she realizes it's what she's been wanting to hear. And not only that, I think really she realizes that her dad's being 100% honest with her. And there's so much beauty in that because that is when the light came in and that is when he passed. And it's like, I think she grasped that because as far as her mother was concerned, she just kind of left it like, Allie will do whatever she wants. I don't really care. I have no control over her. I've got my own life kind of thing where Charlie really wanted to make sure she was taken care of. Okay, in this case, the $120,000, whatever she did with it, $120,000 is a large sum of money. So he at least gave her the financial stability to be able to get, she, a, get a place of her own mm-hmm. or whatever she wanted to do with that. But he didn't leave her high and dry, so to speak, because, you know, money isn't everything, but let's face it, in this world, you need money to eat. You need money to have a shelter. You need money to... For an education, if you want Education, one. if you want one. You need money to be able to go to a job, um, to buy a car, have some form of transportation to a job. So he provided what he could financially, but I I also believe those words at the end was all she really needed to hear so that when he passed, that's what she remembered the most about him. So um, also I just wanted to say, Zach, one of the things that I think we forgot to mention here, and I don't remember exactly how this came out, but there was a, a part in the movie, I think he was talking to Liz and he said, do you believe that people, there are people that don't care? Or do you, or be- no. do you think it's, it's impossible for people to not care? Yeah. Do you think it's, that's exactly what it was. Do you think it's impossible for people not to care? And that, that one line in the movie just really stood out. Because mm-hmm. that showed his positivity at the world and how much he'd really thought about life, even the last few days of when he was dying. Because you know what? It's the simple things. It's the simple things. It's like, really, he saw how much care, how much Liz really cared about him. I think he probably realized how much Ellie cared about him. Even a stranger that's delivering pizza to him. Right was concerned. Are you okay in there? So you know what? I think that's when he really came to grasp that I think most people innately are good. And I don't think most people want to hurt. Yes, there are the people that do. We're going to be realistic here. But really, a lot of times people don't know what to do with this. And I think that's the part that I really want to emphasize the most. 
A lot of people would not understand the depth of pain this movie provokes in one unless you've suffered it. But I will tell you some that the reason why there's something there for everyone is there someone that you've rejected in your own life because of a judgment, because of something they said, of something that you've cast them out of their, your lives and you've just said, you've just moved on. And maybe that person's suffering, or maybe you don't even know if they're suffering, but just for yourself, isn't it worth some time and energy to maybe see how that person's doing? There's a part of me that has a hard time leaving situations in a place where there's not a closure, so to speak. And that doesn't mean with everyone I meet in my life. That's totally impossible. But the people that mean something to me, I can't just walk away without saying something. And yes, I have had my own experience with family. And it has been painful at times. And often I think I wish there could be some way of a better understanding. But unless I am seeing something that is not accurate. I feel as though the acceptance is not there because I am different. So I'm illustrating this just from a personal point of view that there's a part of me that wants to actually have a conversation, but I feel like I've tried and it's gone nowhere. And so maybe that's something to consider too, maybe from the other side. Because I don't want just people to feel like it rests just one side because there's two sides to every story. But if a person has actually tried to connect and there's no way that they can connect, it gets to the point that you give up because you want to know something. It begin, it, it is so extremely painful that walking away is really the only thing one can do unless you want to live that pain for the rest of your life and feel like you want to connect. But if you can't connect because you're not allowed in, my point is there's nothing you can do. And I think that it it's really, I think it's something to ponder like about just Everyone to take a moment and think about that. Is there someone that you really have cast out of your life because their belief system is different than you? Or why did you cast that person out of your life? Or why? Because the point is, you can still save that, meaning that you don't have to agree with that person. But the words that could be exchanged could be kind of an everlasting thing within you that could bring peace and comfort. Life is not, I realize that I'm an idealistic person and that's not the way life is. And I understand that. But I also think that after seeing this movie, it was really tragically sad how alone each of these people were in their own world when they were once a family and how judgment and differences of opinion and all the things that maybe weren't that big that seemed that big at the time grew into this big whale, right? This big, huge 
disagreement that seem like, no, I'm not going to go back and revisit that because, because I'm done. But I'm just saying on both sides, you, I think it makes you, at least it did make me, it made me stop and think about, whoa, wake up. This movie has a lot to offer for everyone. It's not just if you get the depth of pain. It's really about who has it been in your life that maybe you've judged and cast out of your life. And I think that is so strongly revealed in this movie with so much emotion and so much, it's brutal. It's the, 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 it's the brutal truth of it. I mean, that's, that's what it is. And that's why I said it was the most emotionally mature movie I've ever seen because we don't want to talk about that stuff. We want to just bury it and let it go because it's too painful to hang on and it's too painful to look at that. Yeah. Um, you know, here's the reality. We're all human. We all suffer from similar afflictions. The, the dynamics of our relationship and the stories we tell ourselves about these relationships and why they haven't worked or whatnot, this is inherently the human condition, right? We're not, none of us are perfect. None of us are without our flaws. Like, you know, I've always been a person that's a proponent of behavior shapes outcome. We are not always in control over how others react to things, but we ourselves have a vote in the way we choose to react to, th to situations. And also, as part of the human condition, we're also very pain-averse. We try to, whether it's burying the pain or staying away from the pain, when sometimes processing something, you have to go through the pain in order to move on from it, to not carry that with you and you know he he was carrying the burden of all that to go from being that heavy to you know once that emotional burden was lifted the physical burden was lifted too but but the other thing too i think is that i think it's okay to set up boundaries in your life when you've determined certain things haven't worked for you when you have worked towards something when you have tried to mend something but it's not your job inherently on your own to fix situations um there's you know i think it's important to do your part but you it's sometimes important to divorce yourself from relationships that are not helpful and to not feel guilty especially if you've put um you know you do 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 do, do diligence into trying to make things work. And, um, but the, but the most important thing beyond that is this movie, I think, typifies, demonstrates the hurt, the misunderstanding, the dynamics between people when people are oversimplified. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love what you just said there because and judged. one thing of judgment is not necessarily that person, but 
they can be defined. A person can define a person. And the stories were told. Or the stories were told. Mm -hmm. And from that one thing decide, oh, no, 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 this, this, I don't even want to be with this person. I, because of the judgment, the judgment that's passed on. No, I can't, you know, I, I don't, in other words, that judgment that the way that they perceive the person to be that judgment just on the one thing becomes so huge that they don't look deeper into that person. It's just that maybe that one person believes differently than they do. So homosexuality, religion, some of those politics, any of those big subject matters that create or can create a lot of chaos in a family system becomes the reason why. Is that really the reason why? Or is, is it, it worth just, it? I guess what I'm saying is innately, isn't it more about who that person is that's the most important thing? To look at who that person is, not maybe their belief system, but maybe just to look at to who that person is. Is that person a good person? Number one, is yeah. that person... Well, that's what we do. We say good versus evil. We yeah. Us versus them, and they're bad and we're good. Here's the thing. But see, what I'm just saying, does that person show good deeds? Does that person... Is that person kind? Is that person... Even if you disagree with the person's gender for sexuality or their religion or whatever... Does, is it worth the relationship because of that, was my point. Because they may not, because they might be a homosexual, I will not hang out with you because you're a homosexual, and I think that you're going to go to hell for that. I'm just saying, as an example. Or you don't go to the same church as I do, so guess what? You're not going to be saved. Judgment. Right. Right. Well, and think about this for a moment. When Charlie and Mary have that final argument, why did Mary keep Charlie away from Ellie? Simple. I thought you would think that I was a failure to tell you about the fact she wasn't doing well in class. That's right, because she put it on herself. So mm-hmm. do you see how she told herself Charlie was the problem when reality she was concerned with the perceptions that he might have about her. About her, that that is the reason why she God. kept him from Ellie for all these years, which then made Ellie believe, build up animosity towards him, that he didn't care. And you know what? He wasn't involved. I'm so glad you remembered that because that's huge. And because it's almost like I don't, didn't remember her taking responsibility, but really what she was saying is here I am supposed to be the good mom and the daughter's not doing well in school. And you want to know something you can tell from that movie this that Ellie is brilliant. So it's not that she's she's stupid or she can't get things. But the mother, I think, had originally thought 
Charlie leaving the way he did with a homosexual. And felt very rejected by that. And, of course, it makes sense. Even though he was just denying who he really was. Right. Which makes total sense of why Ellie would feel abandoned by her dad. But you want to know something? All those years, because I'm not sure that Mary, his wife, ex-wife, Ellie's mother, even realized till that discussion why she had done that. I'm not sure, and maybe, because, you know, honestly, the sad thing in life, and this is really true, we have so much time to be with people when they're healthy and alive, but so much of the time, the very last words that are said are so profound and beautiful, and you look back, you're going, why couldn't this have happened sooner? Or sometimes it never does get fixed. As I was just going to say, or sometimes it never does get fixed and it just stays that way. But, and that's, that. I, I guess what I'm saying is that depends upon the situation. It depends upon the relationship. It depends upon a lot of things because it takes two. I mean, a relationship is between two people. But if you have one person who's just trying to relate to a loved one but feels rejected because of something about them. Like you said, Zach, there's no way in hell they can change that. And it comes to the realization that that there's nothing that can be done. And, you know, I think Charlie really tried so hard because Ellie didn't realize that he was paying more than child support because she's going like, did you realize that we couldn't afford that one apartment because you weren't giving us enough money? And he's going, I gave your mom extra money. So the mom never... She was squandering it. She was squandering it. And she wasn't honest enough with her daughter to to even tell her. But of course, when you've got... I'm just going to say, when you're drinking alcohol, you know how damn expensive alcohol is? I'm And I'm yeah. telling you, I've had people say this. Alcohol... Even if you buy the cheapest alcohol, is very expensive, especially if you're drinking it every single day. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, I, I mean, I'm not trying to get into another subject matter. I'm just saying that when you said she squandered the money, perhaps that was mostly buying alcohol because she was dependent upon it. Who knows? Yeah. Anyways, back to what I was just saying. That basically, the problem is there was oversimplification of people's complicated personalities being simplified into single labels or single sentences—not even sentences. Sometimes single words: homosexual, betrayal. And so you now are summarizing the entirety of a person on, on typifying into one action or into one word or into one sentence. And once the mind's made up, the mind's made up. You know, as humans, we're kind of stubborn. We don't like to be wrong. We don't like to admit that when there is pain in a relationship, that there are two sides to that pain. You know, there's always some aspect of wanting to place the sole blame on a single person when we're in complicated relations with people. There are mistakes on both sides, often. 
both sides. And, you know, the whole us versus them kind of mentality, you know. And again, we're painted verse. So the reality is, I think every character is after the same thing. They all want the same thing. They want acceptance. They want security. They want purpose. They want connection. They want belonging. And most of these characters don't have that. Why? Due to misunderstanding. Like even for Thomas, Thomas thought, my parents are going to throw me in juvie. They're not going to, they're going to write me off because I didn't do what they wanted me to do. And he was shocked to find out they just wanted him to go back home. They just, they, they did not want him to run away and leave their lives all based on one action, all for the fact he stole some money and, and skipped town. They're willing to forgive him. They just wanted to, for him to come back home. And for Charlie, Charlie was judged for the fact he was homosexual, for the fact he did have this extramarital affair with a same-sex student. And so anyways, the bottom line is, you know, these, these dynamics and the way that we have, we're in relation to people is sometimes easy and definitely part of the human condition, especially when we're pain adverse, to place the blame on other people. I'm not saying that we need to make it our job to fix it and to be a fixer when things are not in any position to be fixed. But even in today's world, we do play that <laughs> classical game that's going to always exist as long, so long as we're human, that this person's good, this person's bad. How can we in our right minds truly summarize a person down to a single thought, word, or sentence? Yet, that's what happens with the dynamics of the relationship. Sometimes that does happen. And like I said, as humans, once our mind is made up, we want to be right. And sometimes we have to keep telling ourselves those stories, whether or not it's true or not. And those misunderstandings were so deep throughout this movie. And it was a bunch of misunderstandings that led to these circumstances. And all stem from one person. The source of the problem, as it was seen, was Alan. But also, that's where all the pain came from. So many people were affected with Alan's passing, directly or indirectly. So even though Alan was never had never given any screen time, could have just seen as a useless homosexual that, you know, um, gave up his relationship with his family and relationship with God. It affected Charlie. It affected Liz. affected Thomas. affected his daughter. affected Mary, his wife. affected every character. So that, I think that's the lesson is, is understanding that life is short and before long, you know, people are grown up and, and you can't live with regret in your life. So just, you know, be responsible for your own behavior. But at the same time, you can only do your part as a person. You can't force people to drink the Kool-Aid you drink or whatever. You know, you, it's, all, it's up to you to try to take a stance of compassion towards one another because there's this just mess of misunderstanding. Well, I also think it would be very, would have been very helpful. Of course, Ellie was very young. She's only 17 in this. 
But to just totally believe everything her mom said without even checking in with her dad or, you know, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility to put on her. And parents do that sometimes. Yes, they sometimes they do, do that. But what, where I'm going with this is that sometimes different topics bring so much shame and guilt to people because of society and the stigma. But there's so much stigma with yeah. so many things. And so once there's shame and guilt, it's so hard. It's so hard to talk about that because guilt... It means re-engaging with pain that we'd yes, rather not do. I mean, I have a great definition about shame and guilt that I use a lot with my clients and I used with my patients, but guilt is about something you've done. Shame is who you are. Shame to me is one of the worst feelings in the whole wide world. And I, I've, I've experienced it myself. Where Rejection doesn't feel good either. It doesn't. So to have to step up and to open the topic and really discuss it. And although uh, as hard as it may be, sometimes can give one an answer as to whether or not that person that has judged you is going to open their heart or whether they're closed to you. But see, in this movie, I think that was the part that was just so profound about it is that there were things that people thought that weren't even true. Okay. I mean, that's a big part of it. Like, you know, um, the portrayal, like sometimes people portray themselves differently than who they are with Thomas who portrayed that he was this upright Christian person trying to be a missionary and preach to others when he had committed his own sins. Okay. I think there is a way that we can be much more effective with realizing we're all human and like you said, Zach, being able to say what we want to say openly and honestly and to not be ashamed of who we are and the people that do not accept an individual for who they are, you know something? Then I say there's nothing you can do because you, you, you could contort yourself, you could change, you could try numerous times. It's not going to change the situation it's that other person that has to decide whether or not they want to take a deeper look and really consider the decision they've made. And so I just feel like there was so much misunderstanding because there were just like these thoughts of like, yes, it was true. Charlie did have an affair. Charlie was a homosexual. Charlie did leave his daughter. Charlie did, but you know what? I like Charlie. I like Charlie's heart. His heart spoke about honesty. His heart was about, was open. He was deep. He, he wanted, I guess his expectations may be high for his students, but he wanted them to be successful in this world. But you know what? It came back to honesty. Um, I don't think they're exactly... Help me with this one. I don't think there's a time in a line in this movie or a time in this movie where Charlie was not honest. Can you think of anything in the movie he was being dishonest about? I think he was totally pouring his heart and soul out throughout the whole movie. I mean, okay, 
he might have been avoiding going to the hospital. Okay, but he knew inside he was dying. I'm just saying honesty-wise. Well, he let it happen, though. But that didn't make him dishonest. He kind of did. Why? Because he could have avoided letting things get that bad. He didn't think about the fact that his death was going to hurt people the way it did. But that's not being dis... I think that he... Well, yeah, he, he, but you need to understand is... I mean, it depends on how you look at it. I, I've got a few other things I want to say, and we're, we're getting close to two hours. Just wanted to give you, an, give you a date. No, I'm just saying, though, I think he spoke from his heart when he was dying. Too bad that that's when a lot of this happens. And I don't think he had the courage to speak up and extend himself beyond that because he felt so much guilt and pain for what he did to his daughter. And I think that was really why he didn't really speak, communicate, is because he the he was he had he was shrouded in shame and guilt. Is I guess what I'm trying to say. I think so. sh- shame was his dishonesty. I mean, I don't think he tried to hide it in a way, but I, it was, he did hide in his house. He did feel like he had to hide it from people. I just wanted to say more than anything is, um, you know, um, everyone in this movie wanted to be accepted, but every character also needs to have their own self accountability and more than anything is just to understand that there's there's strength in vulnerability and strength in um, compassion. Um, you know, if we can be wise enough to understand there's an opportunity there, um, you know, and sometimes emotions and those things run deep and they over the are over the course of years, if not decades. And it takes putting a lot to the side to to decide that you're not going to be angry at someone anymore mm-hmm. for something that you can't change, that it's their behavior, you know? So. Well, and I think the one last thing of what you just said there, it's so important that a person that is angry, a person that's upset, to let that go. And forgive the other person, not really say forgive, forgive, or you go and say, I forgive you, but to let to go, let it go, to yeah. let it go, because that is the compassion we have for ourselves is letting go of some of those things that, that hurt us so badly and move forward in our lives. Yeah. And I just want to say more than anything. I think the, this movie did a really good job capturing, um, the dread that um, one feels when going through grief and loss and um, just situations that are out of your control, you know, in your own life. And as humans, we tend to internalize this. We tend to blame others, blame ourselves. Um, You know, uh, if we're not creative, we're destructive. And, you know, um, that's where the vulnerability and being compassionate, giving people the benefit of the doubt, some people may, may, don't, may not deserve that, okay? They might use that and abuse that. But in its purest form, there's something transformative that can happen if we 
give people the benefit of the doubt as long as we don't let that go too far that, you know, we don't have any sense of boundaries. And so I'm just saying even something that was well characterized over the course of decades is always worth a second look just to make sure on occasion rather than having our mind made up about something because we could be completely um, ignorant about the true nature of something without having not experienced it ourselves. As humans, if you haven't walked it, it's best to not make a judgment about it. And it's, I know it's really hard because as humans, we want to be right and we want to look smart and we want to look accepted and we want to be an expert at something, even if we're just topping on the bandwagon, you know, looking at a social thing and saying, and an oversimplification of people, you know, oh, these people, they're worthless. These people are this. And, you know, reality is try to hold yourself back just like Ellie held herself in the door. Instead of walking out, again, does not mean it's your job to fix it, but it is your job to show up enough there for yourself. You have a sense of closure. You have a sense of peace in your heart because there's so many things in life that we don't have control over. So why don't you take control over the things that you do have control over? And the last bit is the things that you don't have control over. You have to accept it. You have to let go. You have to accept the fact there's some things in life you're not going to have any control over their outcome. And that's just the heart of it. Mm -hmm. So true. All right. Well, hopefully, you guys, unless you have anything else you want to add, I hopefully you guys found this um, podcast um, informative, informative and, and resonate with you on a level that um, you yourself got out of this. And if not, no worries to each their own. You know, uh, I don't think we claim to be experts in things. I, I do think that we do understand what grief is like. I, I think we could resonate with the dread that these characters felt and the misunderstandings and, you know, it just, I guess the disappointment sometimes that comes with life. I totally agree. Um, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, I don't really have anything else to say. I just uh, want to thank you all for listening. And um, we love doing this podcast. And we really did miss last week. My last week was not right without doing this. Um, but that may sometimes happen. We are humans. And sometimes those things happen. And right now, actually, I feel as though I'm coming down with a really bad cold. But I was determined to do this podcast tonight because... Last week seemed kind of empty without doing it. So I just want to say peace and love to all of you. Um, looking forward to um, another podcast, hopefully next week. And uh, in the meantime, take good care of yourselves. Yes, be well, be gentle, be kind uh, with yourself and with others. Understand that we're all human and we're tr all trying our best. Um, some of us don't understand what the best means and what it means to be vulnerable and compassionate towards other people. Just gently try to remind one another without being judgmental. Give yourself grace. Yes, and give and, others grace. And give others grace. And uh, in the meantime, peace and love. Peace and love to you guys. Um, check us out on the web, polychromatique.com. Of course, as always, Apple Podcasts. Um, rate and subscribe. I guess it's it's not subscription anymore. Follow our podcast on there would be helpful. Uh, again, apologize for the um, bit of um, us falling off the map for the past couple weeks, but we are back and we will be back as we're able to. 
um, we'll try to get back to our commitment of weekly and just know that uh, we've missed being on the air and we're happy to do this podcast and we're really excited to talk about this. So um, I'm sure we'll have some other topics that come up. Um, You know, creative flows happen. All right. Peace and love, guys. Until next time. Take care.